everything comes down to love Then just what am I afraid of When I call out your name Something inside awakes in my soul How quickly I forget I'm yours I'm not my own I've been carried by you all my life Everything rides on Good morning, Transit Church. How's everyone doing today? We're good. Thank you for that good morning. Back to me. Appreciate that. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Nick, one of the pastors here at the Transit. And as that bumper showed, we are in uh, a sermon series going through 1 Peter, and we're rounding the corner. We're rounding the bend in our 1 Peter sermon series. It's going to be the second to last sermon series in 1 Peter today, and it's been quite the journey. I've enjoyed preaching it, and hopefully you guys have enjoyed that as well, uh, going through first, not, not, not my preaching, but God's word, <laughs> first Peter. Uh, so uh, we're going to be in first Peter 5, 6 through, uh, 6 through 11, uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, so turn there. Um, and uh, the text we're looking at, this serves as kind of the closing, final remarks, final exhortation that the apostle Peter is giving the early churches that are scattered throughout Asia, Asia Minor. And so what he's saying here is immensely important. So some of the, the final things that he wants to leave the churches with before he, he kind of signs off on that letter. And a simple summary of what he's going to say, I think kind of three points of what he's going to hone in on in this final exhortation uh, would be this. One early church, I exhort you to walk in humility before your mighty God who loves you and cares for you. Uh, walk in bold resistance to the devil who hates you and desires to destroy you. So we're talking about a little spiritual warfare today, uh, which is going to be exciting. Uh, and, and lastly, I love this last part. Walk in unshakable confidence. Unshakable confidence in God's promise to you, the hope of future glory. So those are the three things we're going to be looking at, uh, but don't take my word for it. The verses will be on the screen. We're going to read this text out loud together. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive on in. Sound good? Amen. Awesome. All right, here we go. Help me read this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you because you're a God of grace. How else could we come before you if you weren't first a God who first loved us and first extended grace and forgiveness to us? So we come to you solely based on the fact of your nature, of who you are, that you are a God 
of immense grace and forgiveness and mercy and love. And I pray this morning, from start to finish of the service, you would be magnified as the God of all grace, grace that covers a multitude of our sins, past, present, and future. Thank you, Jesus, for the once and for all nature of the sacrifice you made, taking our record of debt and nailing it to the cross so our account is covered. May you be magnified as a gracious God, a God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, showing faithfulness to generation, to generation, to generation. Thank you, God. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd come and you'd have your way with your word and your people this morning. Would you increase in our lives and would I decrease up here? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, First point of our talk this morning that Peter exhorts the early church to, and obviously for us today is this, is that the Christian life, what Christians are called to do is we are called to walk in humble reliance upon our mighty God who cares greatly for us. What a great invitation. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And so what we saw last week and what we see today in our text is that Peter's talking an awful lot about humility. And we need to ask ourselves, man, Peter, why, bro, why is it such a big deal, man? This is like some of the final things that you're telling the church to. Why is it such a big deal in our walk with Jesus? Why is humility such a big deal? And the simple response would be this, is because it's virtually impossible to walk with God in any other way but humility. It's virtually impossible to walk with God in any other way but humility and dependence upon him. Here's why, because what pride says, the opposite of humility is pride. And what pride says is, is essentially this, I don't need God. So if we have a proud heart, if we have a proud heart, we can't walk with God. Because because pride says, I have no need of God. I have no need of the forgiveness. There's no sins to be atoned for. There's no sins to be forgiven. I don't need his love. I don't need his mercy. I don't need his strength to live the Christian life. I don't need his, his empowerment to do what he's called me to do. I don't need his spirit to battle the flesh. I don't need God. I have no need for that hypothesis. That's what pride says. I have no need for God. And then we saw last week in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, we hear this refrain, which is repeated throughout scriptures, is God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I think that um, the reason for that is, I think we could phrase it another way, is is the reason God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, is, is God says to the proud is, if you have no need of me, then therefore you, you don't get me. If you don't need my forgiveness, well, I guess you don't need you know, I think that's, that's the way it looks. And, and to explain it uh, this way, I think God's opposition to the proud, we could say it differently, we could say this, God's opposition to the proud, right? You see, he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the proud, what we see, don't get the grace of God. So God's opposition to the proud is giving the proud what they want, not what he wants. And so, for example, I have a couple, couple kids in the audience, uh, so I gotta be careful. It's interesting now that we have, you know, uh, our family gathering. I love, I love family worship, but my sermon illustrations have to be checked and balanced with what I share up here, which is probably a good thing. So somebody in my family needed help tying their shoes. Could have been Jen, could have been anyone, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, we were rushing to go somewhere, and uh, the shoes weren't getting tied, right? And obviously, you know, we're still learning. There's nothing wrong with that. And I start intervening and... Um, and just checking to see if they're listening. They're not, which is great. So, um, and I, I step in to start helping, helping them. A good father wants to help his kids, right? And immediately I get, N-O, no, I don't need your help. I got this, Pops. Get out of here. I'm like, I go, oh, oh, okay. 
So I kind of take a step back and I just say, I just say, and this is God's invitation to all of humanity. Like I, I believe it's like, hey, I'll be here waiting for you to cry out for grace and I will intervene and I will tie your shoes. And a couple minutes later, as a person was struggling with tying their shoes, there was the, the, the shot up the flare to the father. Lord, I, the father, I need you. I mean, this is getting blasphemous here. Forgive me, it's the illustration. So extend me grace. But then I'm able, once, once the cry for help comes, then yes, the father's heart is, yes, I would love to descend and lavish my grace upon you, and help you do what you need to do, right? And often in the Christian life, our journey looks like, you know, we come to faith by grace and grace alone, not our own doing, and, and then we think that the Christian life isn't still empowered through the grace of God. And so we try to live the Christian life by sidelining Jesus, because we're like, God has taught me everything that I need to do in my own strength, like tie my shoes and all this other stuff. Of course, you, like God's not going to come tie your shoes. But there's other uh, instances in the Christian life where we are called to live in humble dependence and reliance upon God. And Jesus Christ modeled that for the church. John 5, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own except that what I see my Father doing. Jesus modeled that for us. Total, full reliance and dependence upon the Father. And so, in contrast, complete and utter contrast to pride, God invites us into a life of humble dependence upon him. And if we were to ask ourselves, what is humility? Humility is not like a low, abasing, humiliation type of view of ourselves. I would say humility is an accurate view of who we are in light of who God is. Because once we understand who God is, it's really easy to be humble, right? Once we, so I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes, but, but a humble heart says this. A humble heart acknowledges that first and foremost, God is creator, and the implications of that are vast. That's what always shocks me when you're talking with neighbors or, or people you love that haven't surrendered to the lordship of Jesus in their lives, but they acknowledge that, yeah, of course God exists. Well, I'm like, well, you owe him everything. You know, if, you, if you believe God is creator, he's the reason you're here and you're breathing his air. Don't you think you should talk to him and figure out why he created you? That's a big deal to acknowledge God is creator. So then we go, I am the created. I would not exist unless he spoke. If, unless he created, I would not be here. I would not be here, right? So he's created. And then, and then the humble heart says, God is Lord. I am not. I am servant. I am not on the throne of the universe. God does not exist to serve me. He is Lord. I exist to serve him. I exist to serve him. God is judge. I'm not. Humanity doesn't get to judge God for being a good God or a bad God, all of humanity, it's reckoned in, 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 um, in Hebrews, as we're reading through our community Bible reading plan in Hebrews, it says it's, 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 it's um, I'm forgetting it, but basically it's destined for man to die once and face judgment. That all of us, that, that's coming, the day of judgment is coming for all of us, where we will stand, and it's by grace of grace alone, our sins are covered, hopefully you are today, you're here in Christ Jesus, and your record of, uh, of, of, uh, your record of, of, of sin, your debt of sin has been paid on the cross. Jesus Christ has, has, has paid for that for you if you want to plead that on the day of judgment. And hopefully that's the case for you. I want to give you the opportunity to do that today because I'm, what I'm going to say here is that there's no greater opportunity than answering yes to the invitation of Jesus Christ when he says, follow me. There's no greater invitation on the planet than that. But this is what the humble heart says is that God is judge. I will give an account to him for my life, not vice versa. And then lastly, I could, we could do a whole sermon series on the attributes of God, but the last part here, for the sake of my sermon, is the humble heart acknowledges that God is omnipotent, meaning God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. Did anyone see the dude who just set the record for the deadlift? That, like, Norwegian dude who's, like, I mean, looks like a Viking. He, like, deadlifted, like, I don't know, like, a, a thousand-plus pounds, something crazy, right? Like, nose is bleeding, like, arms about to fall out of his sockets, and he just reps it out. 
And uh, that's incredible, right? They're just super powerful. In comparison to the omnipotence of God, that's like an ant waltzing into your kitchen, finding a half-eaten tortilla chip and deadlifting it, and then boasting, puffing out his chest and saying, I am the world's strongest ant. Right? When God steps up to the rack to, to, to crank out some deadlifts, he, he's got the galaxies on each end of the bar. And so it's really easy to be humble. Like, this is, this is what I'm getting at. To obey this command, often we rush to internalize. How can I be more humble? And where am I proud? And there's biblical precedent to watch ourselves. And I'm going to talk about that later in regards to spiritual warfare. But in, in particular with humility, humility comes about through beholding God. Looking to God, not looking to ourselves, but beholding God. It's really easy to get humbled when you understand and know and experience and encounter the living God. Um, and that's why that's what we see Peter do here in, in verse 6. He goes, humble yourselves. He doesn't just say humble yourselves, and then he goes on to the next thing. He links humility with the mighty hand of God. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God. And so he links the two. Not just be humble, but know God's might. Know his power. Know his majesty and respond accordingly. Know who God is and know who you are and respond accordingly. So our problem isn't humility. Our problem is that often in, in, our, in, our, in our faith journey with Jesus is that we lose our awe. We lose our wonder. We lose our reverence of God and his might and his power and his majesty. And then, we, and then, and then on top of that, we lose faith in his ability, in his ability with his mighty hand to show up in the present and radically transform lives. So we often, you know, theoretically on paper, I don't, think, I don't think consciously anyone here would say, oh yeah, God's not, you know, omniscient, all-powerful, all that stuff. But I'm saying, we do, but sometimes we have a tendency to lose the faith to believe that God can actually show up in the present and intervene with his mighty hand. Mighty hand to provide, mighty hand to transform and heal and protect and to deliver his mighty hand. And often in our lives, we subconsciously believe that his hands aren't mighty to save and mighty to intervene. We believe he has weak hands and he's distant, so therefore it all depends on us. Um, and that's what we need to realize is this, is the flip side of that coin, is that walking in humility before God is the most exciting journey on the face of the earth. Why? It's because when we walk in humility before God, it's an invitation for us to experience both the, the, the present and the future glory of God breaking into our lives right? As I seek to decrease, it's like a seesaw, as I seek to go low and decrease and say, my hands aren't mighty. My hands, I don't have enough strength to do what you've called me to do. I'm going to go low. And as I do that, God can be lifted high and magnified and I can experience his mighty hand intervening when I acknowledge my hands aren't mighty. When I acknowledge my intellect isn't as all that, all, you know, everything that's, that I think is chalked up to be, so on and so forth, okay? And so let me illustrate this. Last night, I had a uh, it's just, uh, I've, I've connected with a neighbor recently, and uh, the, dude, the dude and his family, they just love Jesus, man, and, they, and they've seen the Lord do some awesome stuff. So two nights this week, me and him, we've talked for like two hours just about all the things that God's been doing in our lives and done a lot of just sharing these stories, like, and we're both on the edge of our seat, and, be, and like, he was just sharing these incredible stories of, of the Lord calling him and his wife to be radically generous and like saving up money, and then the Lord says, now give it away. Save up money, save up money, now give it away. So they're operating on like zero, <laughs> zero, and I'm like, bro, that's crazy, man. And then he goes, but watch this. There's a season in our lives for like 10 years where him and uh, a bunch of Christians in Oklahoma, they, 
decided to, the Lord put on their heart to move into this apartment complex that was very dangerous, lots of drugs and gang violence, and they felt the calling of God to say, I want my kingdom to come to this place. So they lived there for like 10 years, and they saw the Lord do remarkable things, remarkable things. And one of the things, too, was financial provision for that move for them. And they felt the Lord calling them to do this, but like, Lord, you told us to give away all our money. If, we, if you didn't tell us to give away all our money to depend on you as provider, we would be able to go. And then a couple days later, as they, they, you know, they're exploring all this and all this stuff, a, a, a random friend comes to their door and says, hey, it's a substantial amount of money, I won't say, but here's a check, and the Lord says, hey, you go buy that property you're interested in buying. Here it is. And I go, and I go, boom, dude, there it is. Because here, this is what I said, is because I was like, I'm, I'm gonna, I was like, can I use this in my sermon, <laughs> you know, tomorrow? Because this was last night we were talking, and uh, and basically I said this, I was like, bro, so you guys were able to humbly rely upon God, and to not just trust in your mighty hands to provide for you, and your financial smarts, and because of that, because of that, because that leap of faith, that trust in God's mighty hands, like your money, you experience something that not a lot of Christians experience. I've never gotten that much money. Someone said the Lord told me to give you this money. I haven't. So you get to experience the present glory of God, his mighty hands to provide for you with what he's called you to do, to give you what you need to obey him and transform this apartment complex. He provides. So you get to experience present glory, the mighty hand of God breaking into your life as you fully rely upon him for your finances. It was beautiful. I was all fired up. I was like, let's go, dude. That's what I'm talking about, man. That's what I'm talking about. That's why, that's why walking, and, that, and then I was able to tell him. We're, we're like, we're agreeing. We're saying yes and amen. I said, there's nothing more exciting than following Jesus because our Savior is alive. The Lion of Judah is still at work, and his hands are not weak. He's a mighty God, and he's still doing what he did in this book. Amen? Oh, my gosh. Oh, it's so great to, to talk to my friend last night. That was awesome. When we decrease, he gets to increase. He gets to increase and show up, and in future glory too, right? We have the promise here. It, it will be, when, when we go low, it will be God who does the exalting. Don't worry about exalting yourself. Trust in God. Go low, and he, let him be the one in his timing to lift you up. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I love verse 7. So uh, what sticks out is, is this. You know, the mighty Lord of lords, the creator of the universe is also our shepherd, right? Psalm 23, when the Lord, the Almighty, is our shepherd. And what we learn in verse 7, casting all your anxieties upon him, because God cares for you, we learn that God cares immensely for you. God cares immensely for his people. And the extent of that care is shown in that he invites all of us today to cast all our anxieties our worries and our fears and our burdens upon him. Why would God do that? Why would God invite us all the time, big and little anxieties, to cast them upon him? Why? Because he loves you and he cares for you. And the father doesn't want his kids walking around in crippled anxiety and uh, worry and fear. And uh, I love, um, been reading through a book, a lot of us are reading through it at the transit, called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I highly recommend you read that. It's a great devotional. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good book, and I'm going to share a quote from it to prove it. Um, but this is what he says about Jesus. When you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. Christ's heart is not drained by our coming to him. His heart is filled up all the more by our coming to him. 
To put it the other way around, when we hold back, lurking in the shadows, fearful and failing, we miss out not only on our own increased comfort, but on Christ's increased comfort. Watch this. He, Jesus, lives for this. This is what he loves to do. His joy and ours rise and fall together. And again, often with exhortations in Scripture, we immediately run to, well, how do we cast our anxieties upon him? What does this look like? And first and foremost, the rocket fuel that will cause us to just cast our anxieties upon God is understanding his heart for us, right? Once we truly know and understand that God longs to hear from us and he longs for us to cast our cares upon him, we'll do that. We'll do that. And so this invitation to cast your anxieties upon God is an invitation into relationship with, living, with the living God. How else? See, this, is, this, is, this isn't just theoretical, right? When we cast our anxieties upon us, Jesus says, that I, I, I will give you rest, right? There's a transaction that takes place when we do that. And so this is an invitation into relationship. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do we believe the heart of God for us when we come to him with this? Do we believe that Jesus smiles when we come to him with our needs and with our anxieties and our worries? And so the application here would be some of us in this room, man, just start bugging God again. I think for some of us in this room, uh, maybe, the, maybe the heart of God is saying, man, I miss, I, miss, I miss it when you were talking to me and you were just crying out and you were casting your cares upon me. Uh, the beautiful thing about following Jesus is he perpetually and continually invites us into deeper fellowship with him. In 1 Peter 4, 7, that's where we see that, this relational aspect with the living God that Jesus has made possible for us. And then uh, Peter shifts gear, gears here from 6 to 7, and um, it'd be easy for Peter to stop his final exhortation with just verses 6 through 7, right? And I kind of wish that were the case. I wish the Christian life were you know, just humbling myself before Jesus and casting my cares upon him, and the majority of your Christian life has to be abiding with Jesus, but the text doesn't stop here. The final exhortation doesn't stop here. Peter shifts gears to saying, hey, we need to be watchful for the enemy and the way he's seeking to devour us, and so um, this is my second point. Peter exhorts the church to walk in bold resistance to their adversary, the devil, who hates them and wants to destroy them. Verses eight through nine. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So immediately what sticks out here is Peter, again, is using warfare language. Sober-minded is in the Greek, it's literally gird the loins of your mind, meaning uh, prepare your mind for action and conflict and battle. Be watchful. Uh, that's, that's warfare language. Be watchful for what? For a lion that's seeking to eat you for lunch. Right? That's what he's saying. And so what we learn here is that the Christian life, yes, is following Jesus. And yes, following Jesus into the thick of the battle. Right? And we've lost that in the church. Following, yes, the Christian life, of course, is following Jesus. But where does Jesus lead us? To the gates of hell. To storm the gates of hell. The church is to storm the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. This is Peter, right? That was the commission to Peter. Peter, on this rock, the author of 1 Peter, I will build this church, and the gates, the defensive fortress of hell, will not prevail against the church. The church is to be offensively engaging in spiritual warfare through advancing the kingdom of God across the face of the earth. We follow Jesus, and we follow Jesus into the, the thick of the battle. And so that's what we see, not just about the Christian faith, but this is actually reality. This is the way the world works. There's two unseen kingdoms at war, the kingdom of God and the kingdom 
of the devil. And um, 1 John 3, 8 uh, says this, the reason the Son of God, Jesus appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. That's warfare language, right? The reason the Son of God appeared was to drop a nuke on the kingdom of darkness, right? To destroy the works of the devil, right? And so simply put, this is what Peter's saying. We have an adversary church. He is real. It's not theoretical. He's real, and he is really a threat. He's really a threat to believers. He's really a threat. Um, and I think there's a false assumption in the church today, um, particularly in the West, like subconsciously, um, that as a Christian, I am under no real threat at all from the demonic. And the belief goes like this. The demonic can't have any access or stronghold or influence in my life because I am in Christ. I have full immunity at all times from spiritual darkness. And there's a lot of reasons uh, why we believe that, and it sounds good, it sounds true, but it's not biblical. It's not biblical. Throughout the New Testament, there are repeated refrains written to believers, warnings of um, demonic influence and spiritual warfare and resisting the devil and standing firm in your faith and armoring up in the armor of God, so on and so forth. And Sam Storms, who's well-respected in the Acts 29 community, we're in Acts 29 uh, church, says this, is that spiritual protection, spiritual protection is never once guaranteed for the believer. It's not guaranteed for the believer. And this is why Peter explicitly says, um, Peter explicitly says to Christians, remember, he's writing to Christians, he says, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. Like, like, spiritually, emotionally, physically. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your mind. He wants to destroy your body. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to uh, re-ransom uh, uh, you back into the kingdom of darkness because Christ has transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into light, and the devil's doing everything he can to, you know, like drag you back. And he, Or knowing that he can, he's going to make your life miserable and seek to make you ineffective for the kingdom. But he is prowling around seeking for a way to devour you. And the bottom line is this. If there is no real threat from the demonic and getting devoured for the Christian church, then there's no need for this command. Just the bottom line, right? The bottom line. If there's no threat, then Peter is, is, is the little boy who cried wolf. He is. Well, the Holy Spirit through Peter, right? Oh, Peter, you're lying, right? There's no threat. I mean, come on, right? There's no threat. And uh, no, notice, I was reflecting on this, of like all the illustrations, all, all the animals in God's kingdom that the Holy Spirit could have inspired Peter to use to describe the devil here, right? Like all the animals, think about it. And notice what he doesn't say. He says, church, your adversary, the ferocious chihuahua, is, is, is barking and nipping at your heels, like just, you know, whatever. No, he says, he says like a lion, like a lion that can devour you and eat you for lunch. And he wants to do that. So, so if, what I'm getting at is if there's no threat, this command is a lie to the church, to Christians. This command is, is irrelevant. And I think, um, well, I'm not going <laughs> to, there's a lot of things I want to share. I'm going to keep going. So you might be saying, okay, Nick, well then, how does the enemy devour us? How does the enemy come after us? Where is this battle fought? And what we need to understand is that what I believe is that the greatest asset that the enemy has to destroy you is you. The greatest asset that the enemy uses, the greatest tool the enemy uses in his arsenal of tools is you and I. It's, 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 it's you. 
It's not like going for your toaster or for the flat tire in your car. He's coming after your mind and your heart. This is where the battleground is fought in spiritual warfare. Here and here, mind and heart, soul, your thoughts, your will, your emotion, your desires. And so what I'm getting at is what I believe is um, not all the thoughts you think or all the desires you have and, and compulsions you have I believe they don't all originate with you. I don't think the majority of them originate with the devil, but I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying we have biblical um, uh, exhortations to believe that we need to be aware of the fact that the enemy, th- this right here and this right here, this is a fishing hole for, for the demonic. Just sitting on the dock and, and, and listen, we're, I'm not saying you can ever say the devil made you do it because watch, watch how this works. He goes, hey, I'm gonna, um, I know this person wrestles with issues of self-image, so I'm going to uh, they're going to look in the mirror today. I'm going to cast my line in there of thoughts of self-hatred and condemnation and disgust of their just very being, their very essence. Oh, I hate myself. Oh, I'm disgusting. Oh, I'm filthy, right? Boom. So the bobber's there in the mind, the thought's there. It could originate, it could originate in your flesh. I'm not saying it could. It could also originate from the demonic. I believe that. The issue is, what are we going to do about it? And, and the, only, the only influence the enemy has is when we come into agreement with the lies he's filling our heads with. And when we take the bait, that's when he's got us. And we come into agreement and say, yes, I am X, Y, and Z. Or yes, I will click here and look there. Or yes, I will harbor more resentment and bitterness against so on and so forth. And so to further defend my point, I'm going to call in a key witness, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All right? If you know Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's one of the most respected preachers in the 20th century in the Reformed community. He's known as the doctor, Okay. One of my hobbies in my spare time is reading a sermon series by Martin Lloyd-Jones. So if you're into that, let's grab coffee. We can talk about Martin Lloyd-Jones and his good. But he has a whole sermon series on spiritual warfare. And I read it in my spare time. I was reading it last night, you know, just to, just to prep for today. And I came across this quote, and it is beautiful. And this is what he says. Mind you, mind you, this is not someone like way out in like charismania land. This is a dude who is extremely well respected in the Reformed community. Okay, and this is what he says, and I was so glad I found this nugget last night. He says this, and he's talking about Ephesians 6, right, armoring up and the fiery darts of the enemy. He's talking about Ephesians 6 in the sermon series. But the apostle instructs us, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith, he gets into the King James here, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And he goes, the fiery darts, the devil is hurling them at us. But watch this, watch this. But we in our ignorance and our innocence in these matters do not see him and are not aware of him. We think, watch this, watch this, we think that all these arise within us from ourselves. And we are not aware that it is the devil hurling them at us from all direction. These fiery darts, these things that burst into flame, thoughts, imaginations, desires that come crowding, rushing in, it is the devil who throws them off. But he has concealed himself. And then watch this, there is nothing which is quite so disastrous as not to accept in its fullness the biblical teaching concerning the devil. I'm going to repeat that. There is nothing which is quite so disastrous as not to accept in its fullness the biblical teaching concerning the devil. And he can, I'm going to keep going because it's so good. <laughs> I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All, watch this, watch this. All is attributed to us. All is attributed to us. Everything originates with us. Every thought, every temptation. It's all us. It's just my flesh. And what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying, what Scripture articulates, and what I believe, is it doesn't all originate with us. 
This is what he's saying. All is attributed to us, so we have become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. We are ignorant of this great objective uh, fact, great objective fact, the being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. And of course, because we are not aware of this, we attribute all temptation to ourselves. Because we're not aware of this, we attribute all temptation to ourselves. And my heart with this sermon series, not sermon series, with this sermon this morning, and this hope, is to kind of peel back the curtain for a lot of believers and say, hey, listen, a lot of the things that you are wrestling with, thoughts and compulsions, and, and a lot of this stuff is, can very well be originated in the demonic. And we have to have an awareness of that. We need to be sober-minded, not scared. Not scared. We have nothing to fear in the kingdom of God, but we need to be sober-minded that the threat is real. And what the enemy uses to destroy us is ourselves. Exhibit A, Judas. Luke 22, 3. It says Satan entered Judas. And then what did Judas do? Judas' head didn't spin around 10 times. He didn't levitate out of the upper room and breathe fire on everyone. That's not what happened. What Judas did could all be explained away in the natural. It could all be explained away in the natural, unless the Holy Spirit told on Judas in God's word in Luke 22 and in, in, uh, and in John 13, when it says explicitly that there was demonic influence in Judas's life. That I believe, I personally believe, uh, this is my interpretation, that, that Judas allowed the open door for the enemy through, through, uh, through his own, through, through, through greed and maybe bitterness and all this stuff, that there came a moment, a tipping point, where he gave enough stronghold, foothold to the enemy that the enemy said, all right, let's go. And, and I believe, too, that Judas wasn't even aware. I believe Judas was clueless to the fact that um, of the demonic influence in his life. I believe he just thought everything would originate with him. He's going to be he betrayed Jesus for a couple coins, and then after that, what did he do? He, he committed suicide. He killed himself. And everything that happened in Judas's life, right, could be explained through natural causes. And yet, Scripture says it was satanic influence in his life. Was Judas a thousand percent responsible for his conduct? Absolutely, yes. And did the enemy who's prowling around like a roaring lion uh, take down one of the 12 and devour him? A thousand percent, yes. And how did the enemy do that? He used Judas to destroy Judas. And so with that said, we see the insidious nature of the demonic that the majority of the time, demonic influence in our lives can be explained away as totally natural. And that's where we need discernment. And we also need to humble ourselves under the authority of God's word. And where we have cultural um, uh, opposition to this idea of spiritual warfare, we need to come under the authority of God's word and be like, hey, well, this is, this is what Peter, uh, the apostle, uh, our forefather in the faith, was talking about. And when, he, when Peter gives this command, we need to realize that, dude, Peter knew Judas, man. Like, he, he, who, who's to say that, like, they weren't good buds. And in, in the Last Supper, when everyone, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, not everyone pointed to Judas and said, that dude's, <laughs> that dude's demonized, and we don't want this. Vote this guy off the island. The disciples, they had no clue. They had no clue. Right? That's how subtle the enemy works. And this was, I believe this was personal for Peter and someone, someone who's speaking from experience and saying, listen, one of the 12 got devoured by the enemy. Early church, understand who your adversary is. And so then that leads to application. Well, then how then do we watch out for and resist the enemy? Well, step one to resisting the devil um, is standing firm in your faith. And standing firm in your faith. What standing firm is, it's, it's, it's taking a look off of ourselves and taking a look onto Jesus, right? We don't look inward to resist the devil and stand firm in our faith. Standing firm in our faith is standing firm in the mighty hand of someone else. 
And so first and foremost, we need to, I think, um, know Jesus, abide with Jesus, rely on Jesus, and then two, know the truth of the gospel and what Jesus has accomplished for us. So one, we need to walk in close fellowship with Jesus um, before we ever think that we can engage in spiritual warfare. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says this, But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. The Lord is faithful. Who gets attributed to protecting us and strengthening us in our fight against the evil one? The Lord gets the credit. The Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah does. So we call upon him. We rely upon him. We pray. We fast. We abide. We get in the truth of his word. Jesus modeled this for us in the wilderness when Jesus was tempted by the devil. Jesus was fasting and praying, abiding with his father, and the devil comes prowling around like a roaring lion, right? Seeking for ways to get to Jesus. Three different ways, right? Devil comes this way. Boom, shut down. Boom. How does Jesus do that? Jesus knew the truth. He knew the truth of who his God was, what his God had said. He says, nope, God says this. Jesus was standing firm in his faith, standing firm in the truth of who God was and who he was in light of that. And that's what leads to the second way uh, we see standing firm, what this looks like, is that we need to know the truth of the gospel, what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's great news. Our sins forever forgiven, nailed to the cross, thanks to Christ's sacrificial death for us. And then verse 15 continues. Look at this implication of the gospel, uh, the gospel and the work of Jesus for us. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so what we learn here is that Christ's death and resurrection has completely disarmed the, completely, the, the kingdom of darkness and simultaneously armed us, the church, with the weapons of warfare to destroy strongholds. And the implication of that is this. Is, this is what I'm getting at. In our fight against the enemy, we have to realize how much heat we are packing in the kingdom of God. Right? We're armed and dangerous. Jesus Christ doesn't tell us to go storm the gates of hell unarmed without any armor. Listen, listen. We have to realize, we have to realize this, that we, in Ephesians 2, 6, says this. We are, Christ says, in our union with Christ, union with Christ through faith, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So we are operating from the position of highest authority. And where Christ sits in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1, the end of Ephesians 1 would say that, that he, Jesus is seated above all rulers, all authority, all power, all dominion. Everything is in subjection to Christ, and we are seated with him, Ephesians 2, 6, in the heavenly places. And so what we need to understand in our fight against the demonic is that, one, well, I just went to Gettysburg with, uh, with Alex, and so it was all about the high ground and everything. Anyway, so we operate, we fight from the high ground, the highest of high grounds, and not only do we have the high ground in the fight, we're fighting an enemy who's disarmed, right? Who's defeated. We have the high ground, and we're fighting an enemy who is defeated. Jesus Christ has rendered him defeated. We have to understand that. And that's why the promises in God's word are so beautiful. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil, and what will happen? He'll flee. Not he might flee. Oh, let's really hope he flees. He has to flee. He has to go because Jesus is shot out of the grave, disarming him, defeating him. Everything is in subjection to Jesus, and Jesus shares that authority with us because we are seated with him in the heavenly realms. That's the promise. So don't be scared. Don't be frightful. Be sober-minded, but know who your king is. 
Know who you roll with. Yeah, the adversary, the, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. The lion of Judah is on my side, right? So we have that confidence, that assurance, right? And you might be saying, whoa, 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 Nick, rebuttal. Didn't you just negate everything Peter just said? What do you mean disarmed? Aren't we, aren't we, don't we have the threat of getting devoured? Ah, doesn't that negate everything that we talked about in the, in the spiritual realm, how that works? And I would respond by saying this. The, please listen. I believe that the only influence the enemy has in our life is influence that we allow. He, right? And, and, and I'm going to quote a scripture. Don't take my word for it. We're going to quote a scripture. That's the insanity of spiritual warfare. This is, the, this is the, the insanity of spiritual warfare, is this, is that those who reign in victory with Jesus, a resurrected living Savior, King of kings, Lord of lords, seated uh, in the highest of highs, and we reign in victory with him, we often give our defeated foe the territory and the ammunition to be used against us. Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you, while you are still angry. That line there is, what Paul is, is getting at is unrepentant sin, unrepentant anger, saying, I refuse to forgive this person. I am so angry. I am enraged. This person did something terrible of, to me, and I will never forgive them. And I'm not going to seek reconciliation, and I'm not going to let go of this. But I'm going to harbor bitterness. That's what he's talking about, is unrepentance. It's not saying, like, if you're angry, you can never go to bed angry. He's talking, uh, I believe, um, and you shouldn't go to bed angry, but I'm saying is that because you need to quickly repent of your sin, as, as I'll illustrate this to you. So he says, don't let the sun go down while you're angry, while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And as I was reading this, this week, I had a huge revelation. The way I would interpret this, again, we could do a whole sermon on this, this verse alone, but this, this is what I believe Paul's getting at is through unrepentant sin, like refusing to forgive those who've wronged you, we give the enemy something he wouldn't possess unless we first gave it to him. Right? Paul says, Paul says through our sin, through our anger, unrepentant anger, we're giving the enemy something he wouldn't have unless we first gave it to him through our disobedience to God. That's what he's saying. We can talk about what a foothold is, stronghold. That's like a military term, right, of like a military fortress. And basically what we're doing is for our adversary is through our, our willful, unrepentant sin, we're filling the sandbags for his fortification to have more influence in our lives. Louder, you know, a louder voice or whatever, whatever that looks like. We're giving the enemy, we're handing over the enemy something that he wouldn't have. This is why, church, holiness is so emphasized in the New Testament. Be holy, the Lord your God is holy. This is why, part of the reason why, I believe, is so emphasized because in our sin, our willful, unrepentant sin, secret sin, dark sin, that we're refusing to fully surrender to Jesus, we're telling the enemy we're open for business. We're inviting, we're potentially inviting, potentially, potentially, I'm not saying all the time, but potentially inviting in more demonic influence because this is, I've heard this said, I forget where I heard it, but disobedience to God. I, I, I'm just going to say this, it's kind of harsh, but uh, let me illustrate it first. Before you check me out, disobedience to God is, is subsequently obedience to the devil. Disobedience to God is coming into agreement and alignment with the kingdom of darkness. Let me illustrate this. I am so mad at this political group, right? The church, the church is angry in this season, right? Like, oh, I'm so angry, bro, you know? Jesus loves you and I'm mad, you know? Like, I am so angry 
at a person or, or whatever, and I'm refusing to forgive them. And, and Jesus, you say, you are my Lord, and you say, forgive your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You say, you who have been forgiven much, you forgive much. You who have been forgiven, you don't have the right to not forgive and walk in compassion for your enemies. And you go in that, if you're harboring resentment today and bitterness, and you refuse, you're saying, Jesus, no. Kingdom of darkness, what, is, what does the devil say? You hold on to that bitterness. Don't you dare let go of that. That person needs to be avenged. You need, you need to get back vengeance on them. Don't you dare let go of this. And so what do you do? You bend your knee to the kingdom of darkness, and you say, your will be done in my life. Absolutely. And so you want to engage in spiritual warfare. You want to be a spiritual warrior. You go forgive as many people as you can that you're harboring bitterness against as quickly as you can. I have seen in my pastoral ministry and just in, personally and in life, bitter unforgiveness is toxicity. It is like walking through a lion's den wearing a bacon tuxedo and thinking that, that you're going to come out unscathed. So yeah, we can, we can be all, you know, all spiritual warrior gurus. Yeah, go, let's follow Jesus and seek to follow him and ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and where we need to surrender fully to the lordship of Jesus, right? Sorry, I was kind of heavy. But step two would be this in spiritual warfare. Um, engaging in warfare, simply put, is keeping a close watch on ourselves, keeping a close watch on our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and asking and saying, Lord, what am I thinking? What, what's all, what, if, if the enemy did have a stronghold in my life, what would that be? And, and prayerfully asking that, asking the Holy Spirit to come and convict you where subconsciously you might be coming into agreement and alignment with the kingdom of darkness. And then, and then when the Holy Spirit comes and does that, we're just called to confess and repent. Confess and repent. Jesus, forgive me. I'm going to follow you. And I'm not advocating that we can ever walk in sinless perfection, but we are called to obey Christ and to fall forward in obedience to him and live a life of quick, immediate repentance, right? And so some of us today, I think we need to go before the Lord, and maybe I'll, I'll give us some time after the sermon for us to just quiet our hearts before the, before the Lord and see, hey, Lord, where, where am I walking in willful disobedience to you? And if you're here today and you're harboring a secret sin that you've never told anyone or, uh, and, and, and you don't think it's that big of a deal, the enemy loves darkness. Jesus says, Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, he says the eyes are the window to your soul. And when your eyes are dark, how great is the darkness inside of you? And so would you let the light of Christ shine brightly in your life today? Bring that sin to light. We're called in Scripture to confess our sins to one another. The enemy, the, like if you ever watch a Nat Geo documentary, the, 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 the weak gazelle that gets picked off is the one who's not rolling deep in the herd. It's always the lone wolf that gets chased down, right? And so there is no such thing as a Rambo Christianity where you take on the gates of hell by yourself. You know, if you've ever seen a Rambo movie. Um, we need to roll deep with each other. We need each other. We're called in Galatians 6 to carry one another's burdens together. And often the healing and the, the, the freedom that Christ can bring happens through community, through abiding together, through sharing one another's burdens. And so if you're here today, um, and maybe a guy in particular wrestling with certain secret sins that guys wrestle with, come and talk to me, email me in private, but I, the, the, whom the Lord sets free is free indeed. Bring that to the light. Bring that to the light, and you'll see just through walking in obedience and, and bringing that to the light, you'll see a truckload of power decrease from that, okay? So uh, that's, that's the heart of Christ to us, is setting us free and not having us live in captivity. So spiritual warfare looks a, a, a whole lot like just keeping watch on our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says this, guard your hearts above all else for everything you do flows from it, okay? Everything you do flows from it. And then three, lastly, and then I'll conclude with verses 10 through 11. My third point in regards to 
spiritual warfare is this, is that some of us here today, or maybe on the live stream, you know, maybe we're wrestling with a compulsion, an addiction that we just simply can't shake, and we're giving it our best shot. Maybe here it's oppressive uh, depression or crippling anxiety, but there's something in your life that you've been warring against and simply can't seem to break free from. And you're confused, and you've, you've done everything you can to try to do this, and you're just, you're just getting uh, uh, just oppressed and harassed around the clock, and you can't seem to break free. What I want to invite you to is this, is what we see in the Gospels, and I believe Jesus speaks into this, is that there's certain strongholds that have to be broken. There's certain things that have to be cast out through prayer. And so the elders, what I want to invite you today to do is this describes you. You can, again, email me in private. But we, the elders, uh, Joe Workman and I, we have a prayer ministry. Where Luke 4, Jesus says, I came to heal the brokenhearted and set at liberty those who are in captivity, those who are held in bondage. Jesus still does that today. And Joe Workman and I, just through humility and praying for people, we've seen Jesus show up and, and, and heal wounds and deliver people from bondage because that's what he still does. That's his job description. He didn't just do that in the first century. He's, 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 he's a lion Jew. He's alive today. So if, if that describes you today and you feel like there might be something more spiritual involved in this oppression in my life, come and talk to me. Joe Workman and I would love to be conduits of God's grace to you and, and, and just begin that journey uh, of freedom to you. Because here's the deal, and I'll conclude with this. I am speaking not just from God's word. I'm speaking first and foremost from God's word, but I'm standing in front of you today to tell you that I personally experienced an avalanche more of freedom that Jesus Christ has in store for the people of God. I thought in my Christian life that I had arrived, I understood the Christian life, and that the normal Christian life was walking in just perpetual defeat and agony and depression and all this stuff. And then Jesus Christ of Lion of Judah shows up in power and breaks chains and sets me free. I didn't know this much joy was possible in Christ. I didn't know this much freedom was possible in Christ. And so I'm standing here today as a witness, an eyewitness, to, to only testify to what I've seen and heard and say Jesus has, if you're here today and in bondage, Jesus has an avalanche more of freedom in store for his people. He does. I believe that. It's what he does because I've seen it in my own life. It's what he does, church. Brand new indescribable transformation. Not a week goes by where I'm not weeping, just thanking God for what he's done in my life these past couple years. It's who he is, man. He's alive. He's alive. We don't have to live in perpetual defeat. Let's press into the, the, the progressive victory that our victorious king promises for us. Amen. Lastly, and I'll conclude with this, <laughs> getting fired up over here, we need to walk into unshakable confidence and God's promise to us, the hope of future glory. Verses 10 through 11. I love Peter's heart here. I love his heart. And after you have suffered a little while, church, this journey is going to be tough. There's going to be defeats. There's going to be uh, scars. There's going to be confusion. There's going to be, there's going to be perplexity. After you have suffered a little while, fix your eyes on Jesus, the God of all grace. has called you, has called you, to the hope of eternal glory in Christ. And everything the enemy sought to take from you, he's going to restore and confirm and strengthen and establish. We have a promise here of vindication and victory that our God of all grace is going to give us. So what are you wrestling with? What loss are you struggling with today? We need to have confidence, assurance that this day, this day is, is not might going to happen. 
Maybe if God is, is faithful, will it happen? This day is coming. Why? Verse 11. To him, our precious Savior, be dominion forever and ever. Amen. He reigns. He reigns. And we're going to reign with him in victory forever. Every loss we suffer is a slight momentary affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Thanks be solely to our God of all grace. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you so grateful that you love and care for us. You love and care for us. I pray, Holy Spirit, thank you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that um, you would sow that in our hearts today, Lord God. We'd see your heart. We'd see your posture. We'd stop believing the lies of the enemy, that you hate us and you're disgusted with us. But we'd see your heart, Lord Jesus. Please, come and have your way with your bride, Holy Spirit. Tilt the soil of our hearts with its hardness. Soften our hearts to hear the voice of our Father saying, Son, with you, I'm well pleased. Do you understand my heart? Father, teach us to look to you, to rest in your promises to us, your precious promises to us. Who are we that you give us such grace and such precious promises? Father, I ask for your church, where there are strongholds of the enemy, where you be magnified in our lives, Lord God. We want nothing more than for you to be magnified. So we're willing to go low so you could go high. So be exalted, be glorified in our lives. We want to see your mighty hand transform the lives of those around us. For all the loved ones that we know that don't know you, Jesus, would your mighty hand save them? For those that need physical healing in our lives, Lord God, would you heal them? For those that need deliverance from, from, uh, from bondage, would you deliver them, Lord? Would we be able to just call upon you and see that you're a God who is mighty to save? Jesus, that you're a God who loves to heal the brokenhearted and set at liberty those who are held in captive, God. So come have your way with our lives. We want nothing more than for you to be glorified in our lives. We love you. We thank you. You're the God of all grace. And may we leave here resting in the victory, Jesus, that you have accomplished for us.